Awesome. Well, it's good to be with y'all again this morning. I was here about a month ago in June. Uh, my name is Will Nettleton. For those of you uh, I didn't catch on the front end, I am the RUF campus minister at Trinity University. Uh, Michael Novak, who's the senior pastor here, he actually was the campus minister at Trinity before me. And so it's always a privilege to get to uh, come out here and be with all of y'all. Uh, for those of you who don't know RUF, I never like to assume that everybody knows, it stands for Reformed University Fellowship. We're the official college campus ministry of this denomination. So uh, I work for you, believe it or not. And so I am um, on the college campus at Trinity. Curtis Castleberry is also your campus minister at UTSA. And we are uh, going there to preach the gospel, to preach good news to college students, uh, to reach them for Christ and to equip them to serve him. And so it's a privilege uh, to get to be with y'all this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn it to uh, the letter of 1 John. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses uh, 7 through 21. I believe it's also uh, printed in your bulletin there, if you don't have that. And um, <laughs> I was thinking about this this weekend. I have never once in my life picked the right checkout line at HEB. Uh, I have never gotten in the line that is going the quickest. I always get in the slowest line. No matter which one I pick, I am inevitably behind the super couponer or the person that's trying to pay with like Confederate money or something. I'm always behind someone who's taking forever. And this past weekend, I got slowed down by someone who was paying with a large bill and cash. And you know, if you've been to HEB, what they always do in that moment, they pull out the drawer, they get out that magic marker. I don't even know what that marker does, but they write on the bill. And what are they doing in that moment? They're checking to see if the bill is counterfeit, right? They're checking to see if it's real or not. If the bill turns one color, then it's real. If another, then it's not. It's fake. Wouldn't it be awesome if they made those for people? Wouldn't it be great if they made those kind of markers for people where you met a new person and you're like, they seem really nice, but I don't know. They might not be. Like if you could just draw on them and it would turn a color and you would know this is a fake person. You can't trust them. We don't want to be around them. They're not real. Um... Wouldn't it be great if there were that for Christians? If you could know, right? If you could pull out the marker and draw on yourself and know that you're real, that you're an authentic Christian, or that someone else is, that they're trustworthy, that you should be around them because they love Jesus. Um, I ask this because I think if we were to poll our non-Christian friends and ask them what their number one problem with Christianity or the church is, what do you think the answer would be to that question? The number one problem that our non-Christian friends would have with us or with our churches and typically, the answer, I think someone may have said it, is hypocrisy, right? Church is full of hypocrites. Those people are not who they say that they are. We might say it this way, the church has an authenticity problem. We have an authenticity problem. So that raises a good question. How do we know who the real Christians are? And maybe more importantly, how do I know if I'm one of them? You ever had that struggle? How do I know if I'm saved? How do I know if I really am a Christian? In our passage this morning, John tells us that, that there is a way to tell if someone is really a Christian, a test, if you will. He says that those who truly love God also truly love one another. Those who truly love God truly love each other. And this is so foundational to the Christian life that John tells us you can actually use this to tell, tell who the real Christians are. Real Christians love each other. That's the big idea this morning. Real Christians love each other. It's simple enough. But if you've been doing it for long enough, you know, it's not easy. It's a simple idea, but it is really hard to actually live that out. Real Christians love each other. So we're going to divide up this passage uh, into a couple of chunks, three different chunks this morning. In verses 7 through 11, we're going to see that real Christians love each other because they love what God loves. 
Real Christians love each other because they love what God loves. In verses 12 through 18, we're going to see that real Christians love each other because it's proof of who they are. It's proof of who they are. They can't help it. Finally, in verses 19 19 through 21, we're going to see that real Christians love each other because God loved them first. Real Christians love each other because God loved them first. Okay, so with all that as introduction, let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. And before we do that, let me ask His blessing by Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray now uh, that you would send your spirit to be with us. We know that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray that you would feed your sheep this morning. God, we don't need more good advice. We need good news. And so I pray that you would show us Jesus and that you would make our hearts more like him. Holy Spirit, I pray for those this morning who are struggling with assurance and need not be. That who know that who are Christians and are looking for assurance of it, I pray that they would find it this morning. And I pray that those who are still seeking, Lord, would find you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God's word endures forever and ever. Okay, so in verses 7 through 11 there, we see real Christians love each other, John argues, because they love what God loves. You look back at verse 7, John begins simply enough. He says, let's love one another. Right? Then he lists out a couple of reasons. First, love is from God. So for truly loving one another, that has to be from God. There's no other way for true love to exist in us unless it is from God. So if we love one another, then we know that we are born of God. And then in verse 8, he goes on and he says, Okay, if that is true, then the reverse is also true. If you're not loving one another, then you don't know God. Why? Because God is love. John says God is all-loving, and so to know him is to love. You just can't help it. It is contagious. You want to love what God loves. 
And what does God love? God loves his people. God loves his people. How do we know that? How do we know that God loves his people? Well, John goes on to tell us in verses 9 and 10. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, a couple things to note in those verses right there. John wants us to know that the love of God was made manifest. Manifest, what does that mean? What does John mean by that language? He means it was visible. The love of God was visible to us. God's love was demonstrated for all to see. It was a public affair. He carried out among human beings to be seen and to be appreciated. If you go back to the first chapter of 1 John, he starts the letter this way. He starts his letter this way in the first four verses of chapter 1. He said, That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched. John is using all this experiential language to say, it happened. Jesus came. I saw him. I heard him. I touched him. God's love was real. It was physical. It was among us. God's love is not some abstract declaration of general affection. God's love is not some abstract declaration of general affection. No, his love is concrete and historical and real. And he has proved it. How has he done that? John tells us he has sent his only son so that we might live through him. In verse 10, John gives us a helpful reminder. He says, it's not our love for God that's central. It's his love for us. This is so central to Christianity. We did not go looking for God. He came looking for us. It's why we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You ever wonder about that word? You may hear that language thrown around a lot. Gospel just means good news. It's just a word for that. And what is the good news of Christianity? That we don't have to go looking for God because he has come looking for us. There aren't boxes to check because he has checked the boxes. Tim Keller, I think I mentioned this last time, is the pastor who is said, famous for saying that this is what's unique about Christianity. Every other world religion tells you this is how to get to God. This is what to do to get to heaven. And Christianity says this is what God has done to get to you. This is what God has done to get to you. The work is done. It's finished. That's why we call it good news. John tells us you're not knocking on heaven's door Heaven's door, heaven is knocking on your door. You didn't go knocking on heaven's door. Heaven came knocking on yours. Verse 10 tells us that God's love involved him sending his son to be a propitiation for our son. I had to really work on that pronunciation this morning. Propitiation is a big word, right? But it just means atoning sacrifice. In the Old Testament, almost everywhere this word is used, it refers to the removal of guilt because of sin, or a sac- usually the removal of sin through sacrifice. And I mention that to say that John is emphasizing this is how we know that God loves us. That he sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. To remove the guilt that we have before him so that we can have eternal life. This is the heart of the gospel. That God loved us so much that not only does he not punish us for sinning against him, he takes that punishment on himself to reconcile us to him. Though we offended God, we spit in his face with our sin And wanted nothing to do with him. Romans 3 tells us no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. And instead of striking back at us, which God could have, would have been his right to do. Probably what we would have done, yes. God took every debt on his own shoulders to restore our relationship with him. This is why John can emphasize this isn't about our love for God. Christianity is not about you stirring up a ton of love for God and seeking him out. 
God has come looking for you. God loves you. That is the primary story of Christianity. And then your response to that love is what is important after that, after you've understood that God has come for you. So 7 through 10, that's the case that John is making. That this gospel, that we have to get this love of God. We have to understand it. And then he brings it in verse 11 back around to his main point. Okay, so if God has loved us like that, the way we just described it, we also ought to love one another. Because we need to love what God loves. God loves the people sitting next to you. And so you ought to love the people sitting next to you. Have you ever loved something uh, just because someone you cared about loved that thing? You want to talk about, you ever had a spouse or a friend or a child introduce you to something that you came to care about just because they cared about it? I remember the exact moment uh, I convinced my wife to love Ole Miss football. Uh, I grew up in Mississippi. I went to Ole Miss. I love uh, Ole Miss football, which is sad because we're not good. And uh, my wife did not go to Ole Miss. She went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. They're amazing at basketball. We are terrible at everything. And, uh, but be that as it may, I love Ole Miss football. I love, follow the recruiting. I'm all about it. And so when we got married, I really wanted her to get on board with this. I really wanted her to love it as well which is a hard sell, even if you went to school there, much less if you have no connection to it. But we moved back to Mississippi to go to seminary, and I finally got to go up to Oxford to take my wife to a football game. And I distinctly remember one of the games that we went to when everything kind of finally clicked for her, when she realized, like, oh, I get why you like this. Uh, 2014, Ole Miss is playing the University of Alabama, uh, resident juggernaut of college football, you may remember. Alabama is ranked number three in the country, it's a perfectly crisp uh, October Saturday. It's the kind of Saturday you dream about for college football. ESPN had sent their whole game day crew down there. The atmosphere was just electric in Oxford. And with less than a minute to play, Ole Miss is winning 23-17. to 17. But Alabama's got the ball. And they're driving back down the field, and Ole Miss has just, we've been conditioned. We know how this story ends. We have seen this movie before. They are going to score. They're going to beat us. We are all going to be depressed yet again. Hope snatched away from us once more. Well, with 15 seconds left, Alabama quarterback throws up the ball into the end zone for what would be the go-ahead touchdown, and miracle of miracles, an Ole Miss player intercepts it and comes down with the ball. Ref does a quick booth review and confirms it. Ole Miss ball, game over. We have beaten the University of Alabama. And the stadium erupts. I'm talking like grown men crying, like men who are too old to be crying in public like this, just weeping. And it, I mean, it's very, very embarrassing. We beat, old, we beat Alabama. We can cancel Ole Miss football. We can all go to our fathers in peace. Like this, this is good. I'm good with life at this point. And I remember as I was talking to my wife about it later, we were debriefing about the day and I was running back through the different plays and like, did you see this and all that stuff? And uh, she was talking about what it was like to look over at me during that final play, like when we realized that we were going to win the game. And she said I was just kind of like slack-jawed, silent, <laughs> like looking around like, is this really happening? And she was like, it was one of those moments where I was like, he's a little too into this. This is weird. But also, I mean, this is what he cares about. And it finally clicked for me like, oh, this is, this is fun. I get why people get into this. I get why all those people care about that. But the main point is that she really only cared about it because of me, right? She cared about it because she loved me. Because on some level, you begin to love what the people you love, love, if I can say it as clumsily as that. You begin to love what they love. How much more so should that be true with God? That we ought to love what God loves. And John is telling us the main, one of the big things 
that God loves is you and his church, his people. So much so that elsewhere in the New Testament, he's going to call the church the bride of Christ, the wife. A mentor of mine uh, used to talk about the church this way. He said, if Jesus loves the church enough to die for her, we ought to love her enough to be patient with her. I think that is convicting. We ought to love what God loves. Real Christians love what God loves. Um, Which is hard when it comes to actually doing it, right? That's a fun hypothetical. But then you actually have to come in this room on Sundays, right? And you have to get together with these people. And you have to read their political rants on Facebook, right? We have to do these things. We have to love real people. God says, I love these people. I love them and I love you. And you ought to love one another. Real Christians love each other because God loves us. John doesn't finish there in verses 12 through 18. He says, real Christians love each other because it's proof of who they are. Real Christians love each other because it's, because they can't help it. It's proof of who we are. This is one of John's favorite themes in this letter is evidence. John loves this idea of evidence and proof. How can you have proof that you're a Christian? How can you know that you're saved? Uh, in chapter 20 of his gospel, John tells us that he has written that gospel, that account of Jesus and everything that he did and said, that we might believe and believing have life in his name. John wants us to know. He wants us to have assurance, which means we need proof. So in verses 12 through 18, John lays out some proof. He lays out four ways that you can know that you're a Christian. So here we go. First, in verse 12, we'll move through these pretty quickly. Verse 12, he says, the love that he was just talking about. You love other Christians. If we have that love for one another, we know that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He begins this piece of his argument with an interesting, in an interesting way. Right? He writes, you may have, as I was reading it, you may have thought, like, that's weird. Why did he say that? He says, no one has ever seen God. That's kind of weird, right? Like, what does that have to do with John's argument? God is invisible. Okay, sure, fine. That makes sense to all of us. Um, but what John's getting at is that that causes problems when we want to say for sure that God lives in us, right? There's no x-ray machine for saying, like, see, God dwells in me. There's the proof. I'm a Christian. You know. So how do we demonstrate that God lives in us? How do we know that he abides in us? John says one way we know is that we love one another. One piece of evidence that you're a Christian. Do you love other Christians? Do you try to get to know other Christians? Do you put up with them and their needs? And do you let them into your life? Do you let them know your needs and what's going on with you? Do you love other Christians? In verses 13 through 15, John gives us another piece, second piece of evidence that you're a Christian. God has given us his spirit. And because of that, we have seen and testify that Jesus is the Savior. We testify that Jesus is the Savior. Second piece of evidence that you're a Christian is that you believe that. Uh, that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came in the world to save us from our sins. Which, I mean, you're at church on a Sunday morning. It's early. You got up early to be here. That sounds fairly obvious, right? Yeah. Jesus died for sins. I believe that. I can confess that. Um, feel pretty good about checking that box, right? But don't miss what John says in verse 13. He says the only reason that that is so obvious to us is because God has given us of his spirit. Let me just pause for a second and say, don't skip over that reality. Don't skip over that reality. I know many of us are here this morning and we're just discouraged because of our sin. If you're anything like me, this last week was rough. We're discouraged because of our sin and because of our failure. And we can often wonder, like, am I, am I even a Christian? Is there hope at all for me? And John is telling us in this part of the passage, if you can still say, yes, I believe, 
Yes, I confess that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That is no small miracle. Because lots of people don't believe that and can't believe it because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Their hearts are hard. They have not been changed, right? It is no small thing to be able to come this morning and meekly, mildly say, I don't know much else, but I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died for my sins. There's two pieces of evidence that you might be a Christian. That you love one another. You still confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Third piece of evidence, proof that we are Christians, John says in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that God loves you? One way that you can have confidence as a Christian is when God says, I love you, you can say back, I believe you. I believe that. Uh, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, and occasionally our pastor uh, of the church would call an audible on how we were going to end the service on that Sunday morning. And uh, he would make us all join hands and sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, yes, he loves me. You ever sing that song? And when I was a teenager, I used to just like roll my eyes and think, this is so dumb. Why are we singing this baby song? Why are we doing this? And the older that I get, the less dumb that I think that was. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I think one of the hardest things in the Christian life is to believe that God still loves you. Isn't it? After all these years, after all this failure, doing the same stuff again and again and again, it's just hard. I'm tired of me. How is God not going to be tired of me? One of the ways that you know you are growing as a Christian is that you're beginning to believe Jesus when he says he loves you because he's proved it. Because he came to earth and died on the cross for you. Okay, three pieces, one more. Fourth piece of evidence that you're a Christian. It's in verses 17 to 18. He says, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. John says you can know you're a Christian if you have confidence for the day of judgment. We're not afraid. You're not afraid to die. Not afraid of what will happen on the other end of that, I should say. Not afraid of how you stand with God. Verse 18 gives us um, the explanation for why we don't have to be afraid. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We aren't afraid of the day of judgment as Christians because God's perfect love has dealt with everything that we were afraid of. What is there to be afraid of about the day of judgment? Judgment, right? Punishment. And John's already told us our punishment's been dealt with. Jesus did that. That's what the whole propitiation thing was about. He has been an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's nothing left for us. God has poured out every drop of his wrath. That's done. Romans 8.1 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. That is dealt with. Jesus took care of that. Okay, so four evidences that you can know that you are a Christian. Four pieces of proof. We love one another. We believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God and our Savior. We know God loves us. And we're not afraid of the day of judgment. Real Christians can have confidence. We have proof. There are things that we can look to to say, okay, okay, I'm not perfect. But yeah, I believe. I don't love my neighbor like I should, but 
a little bit better than I did last week. There are places that we can go, that we can look to know that we are Christians. Finally, verses 19 through 21, John brings us back. Because I can start to beat us up, right? It's, we're quick to take that and think, okay, i got to start doing the checklist. And John brings us back to our motivation for obedience. Real Christians love each other because God loved them first. Real Christians love each other because God loved them first. Verses 19 through 20, John brings it back around to his original point. We have to love one another. And he spent many of these last few verses marveling in the love of God in Christ. And he summarizes his point this way. We love because God loved first. That's the math. That's the math of kingdom obedience. We love because God loved us first. His point is, if you truly get the love of God, then you give it. You just, you can't help it. This is what you do. He actually states the point even more strongly in verse 20. He says, if you say that you love God, but you don't give that love to your brother, then you're a liar. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. You don't get to do this thing by yourself. We are in this together. You don't get to go off and find God by yourself. Neither do I. We have to love one another. It is the natural outcome of getting the love of God. And John tells us why. Because you can't love the God you cannot see if you don't love the brother or sister that you can see. He says you can't love the God that you cannot see if you don't love the people that are right in front of you, in whom God dwells, the body of Christ around you. Right? The Holy Spirit is indwelling your brothers and sisters. They are united to Jesus. If you don't love them, you can't love God. He's put himself right in front of you in the form of the people around you. If you can't love them, then you can't love the God you don't see. And John's point is God's love for us is not abstract. It wasn't just nice thoughts. He took action. He took on flesh. He walked among us. And so I would say as we wrap up here this morning, what that, that means a few things for us. That means that our love doesn't get to be abstract either. Our love for one another doesn't get to be theoretical. It doesn't just get to be thinking nice thoughts about your neighbor. It has to put on shoes and start walking around here. You have to be interested in knowing other people. Because I mentioned this already, it's really easy to love people hypothetically, right? That's why many of us are moving from church to church all the time. Because we think the next church is going to have the people that we'll finally like. And that will finally like us. And we keep finding people that we don't like. It's easy to like people hypothetically. It's different to actually do it, right? To actually reach out to someone and initiate and try and share with them some of your life and to have them make a mess of it, to trust someone and to have them break that trust. These things are hard. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a great theologian, once wrote, uh, he said, there's a great lesson in Beauty and the Beast, the story of Beauty and the Beast. He said, a thing must be loved before it becomes lovely. A thing must be loved before it is lovely. We move towards one another in love, not because each of us are lovely, right? But because God has moved towards us when we were unlovely. Loving each other is always going to be hard as long as we keep waiting for each other to be worth it. Loving each other is going to be hard as long as we keep waiting for each other to be worth it. That motivation is never going to work for you. That calculus is never going to check out. You have to find a different motivation. And John says, the motivation is right here. God loved you first. You don't go love other people to get love. You love other people because you already got it. You got it in God. 
in Jesus. He has shown you all the love that he has for you. So could we be the kind of Christians who love each other simply because God first loved us? I think is what real Christians do. If we're going to be real Christians, if we're going to know that we're real Christians, then we have to love one another. Not just like one another, not just get to know one another, love one another. And I would say a simple test for this is when's the last time that you felt loved by someone in your church, in your community group? What did that feel like? And have you done anything like that for people that are not you? Have you done that for someone else? Have you loved people the way that you've been loved? Go back to this. Remember the love of God in Christ. He has loved us. Now we go out and we love other people. And we might be real Christians. Let me pray towards that end. Great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did love us. Even in our sin, even in our brokenness, that you were a God who is not content to leave us where we were. That you were a God who came down. The Word became flesh, John tells us in his gospel, and walked among us. How we thank you that real men and women saw you, touched you, experienced you, Jesus. And that they wrote down their stories that we might know you and experience you as well by your spirit. I pray that that would be true for us this morning. I pray that you would meet those who don't know you this morning. Would you come by your spirit and be near them? Would you give them hearts of flesh, remove their hearts of stone? Pray for those of us, Lord, who do know you or are struggling to. Would you give us confidence? Would you let this love uh, that so fills us go out into the world? Would you help us to love one another? God, as you have first loved us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.